Welcome to the Bigfoot Terror in the Woods Sightings and Encounters podcast. I'm your host, W.J. Sheehan. Hello, everybody, and once again, may I welcome you to our show. My name is W.J. Sheehan, author of the series Bigfoot Terror in the Woods Sightings and Encounters. Available in ebook and paperback formats at Amazon.com. And now, Volume 6, 5, 4, and 3 are also in audiobook at Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. So please have at them, my friends, and do leave me some good feedback. You'll notice also in the description of our podcast is a little URL link there now. And if you click on that, you'll have an opportunity to receive a free audiobook. So please check that out as well. And now, before I bring my brother in, we have two winners for our autographed book contest. Yeehaw! Yowie! <laughs> oh, wait, not yowie. Yeehaw! <laughs> Yeehaw! Uh, Rodney Copeland, I believe he's from Pennsylvania. And. If I pronounce this wrong, forgive me, because the capital I and small L in computer lingo look the same. I believe it's Illich Gallardo. Uh, I think it's I-L-Y-C-H Gallardo from Tucson, Arizona. So congratulations to both of you. And please get back to me with your addresses ASAP. Uh, I'll get those copies right out to you, and hopefully you're listening to this podcast as well. But... If you're not, fear not, my friends, because I will email you and tell you that you are the winner. And for those of you who didn't win, we'll be doing more of this in the future, I'm sure. So there'll be more opportunities to enter and win. And now, cryptids in the news and history and other oddities. As Kevin presents a creep show, the Dyatlov Pass Incident. Kev, how are you today? I'm doing okay, Bill, and uh, congratulations to our winners. That's uh, that's awesome. By the way, I don't think I have any autograph copies. <laughs> It'll cost you. What's up with that? You guys don't know how lucky you are as winners. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, obviously today I knew you were going to uh, dig into this uh, Dyatlov Pass thing. And, uh, you know, as far as television goes, uh, I'm pretty much a history, archaeological, science buff. Uh, and I remember years ago uh, just running across this thing, and I tuned it in just to see what it was all about, having no knowledge of it at all. And uh, when I was done watching uh, this uh, show that was presented on this incident, I was just dumbfounded. I mean, this is one of the creepiest, nastiest uh, uh, unknown happenings to be uncovered in, in decades, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I agree. I, I think it is, and we'll get into it, but I think it's one of the most shocking incidents, Bigfoot or otherwise, that I've ever uh, researched. And there is a ton of information out there on this, and and very strong information. Like, you know, we'll talk about it, but all of the photographs that the folks on this party took 
are available and you can look at them look at them your, yourselves from each person's camera you know in the order that they took them kind of fun pictures right up until the disaster so amazing amount of documentation and then an amazing amount of controversy around what really happened to these people which we'll get into a little bit here today yeah and of course this was uh uh happened on the soil of russia at the time right soviet exactly. union exactly so it took place in uh, 1959 in the northern ural mountains in russia so uh you know, a pretty desolate place. And um, just to give a, a rough perspective, um, this location is about 1,200 miles east of Moscow. Yeah, so is that uh, closing in Ural Mont uh, Mountains? Is that uh, closing in on like Siberia territory? It's out in that direction, but not quite far enough. But it's definitely a desolate place from what I can tell. Yeah, I mean, Russia is an immense country. Huge, yes. Uh, so, you know, you talk 1,200 miles, you know, it's, I'm not saying a drop in the pan, but, you know, it's a big, big piece of real estate. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, what? just jumping into it a little bit, one thing that's kind of interesting is certainly, you know, going all the way back to 1959, so it took place a long time ago, um, it's still under investigation. We'll get into that a little bit. But, you know, it's named the Dyatlov Pass as if that's kind of a place, but it only got that particular name after this, uh, you know, disaster. Um, so Dyatlov was actually the leader of the expedition and and during this expedition, you know, they these folks, uh, ten experienced hikers went out. Um, they they were in one way, shape, or form. They went to the same university or institute in Russia together. Some of them were grad students. Some were all some were still students there, and some had graduated recently. Uh, and this gentleman, Igor Dyatlov, actually led the expedition. But they were all super experienced folks. Um, there were uh, uh, eight men and two women. And as it turns out, when they set out on the expedition, one of the men got sick and he actually had to return home. So he didn't know it at the time. He was probably upset that he got sick. But instead of 10 people ending up dead on this expedition, it was nine people, which ended up being seven men and two women. Wow. So now, Kev, this, uh, if you know, I'm not putting you on the spot, uh, Dyatlov, uh, the leader of the group, was he also a student at the university with them? Yeah, I think he was like two years out of school, as I remember. And uh, and by the way, when you say you're not putting me on the spot, you're not putting <laughs> me on the spot. <laughs> yeah, because I don't know exactly what you have in your possession there, but, you know, it, we could kick it around. We're just a couple of blokes. Oh, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I just want to make sure you knew that I didn't have like the phone a friend option. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I can't and ask I, the audience. Maybe sometime we'll do a live recording. And you, can ask the audience. you know, I do remember, uh, like you said, there was a lot of film footage. They were taking pictures and I think they even had some movie footage. Didn't they have a movie camera? There were. I wasn't able to get the uh, movie footage to... Uh, to play though i wasn't able to find uh, a version that i could play back you know it was so far back i don't think anybody 
digitized it. Yeah, no, no. But uh, what I was getting at was in the footage that I saw, uh, first of all, a lot of these people were grad students. They were intelligent people. And what I saw of them was they were dressed and prepared for what they were entering into. It wasn't just that Dyatlov was the leader. Uh, these people were really dressed for the elements. Uh, uh, as I recall, some had walking sticks or poles. I mean, they were oh, ready. Yeah. Well, they were they were all very experienced uh, hikers and very experienced skiers. So, kind of, you'll see in a lot of the pictures, they're carrying skis. They're they're walking along with their uh, ski poles. Of course, uh, all the pictures, there's snow everywhere. Even when they're setting out, you know, in this region of Russia, and they set out in early February of 1959. So certainly in the heart of the winter yeah, in Russia. Yeah, yeah. I, I would imagine these people were akin to like. Uh, military uh, snow patrols. I mean, they knew what they were doing. Oh, they knew exactly what they were doing, and they were going out to um, pursue, like, a, another level of certification. You know, I think they already had two levels of this mountaineering, extreme mountaineering certification, and they were going for another level. Okay. So it wasn't like it was, hey, let's uh, let's get together and go uh, go for a walk in the mountains and go camping. Not at all. No, they were uh, they were geared up for bear, and uh, you know they had great intent uh, to accomplish uh, this mission, if you will. Exactly. Exactly. Wow. Okay. So go ahead, bro. Yeah. So so they set out, and um, the agreement that they had was that. Um, they expected to be back in about two weeks. And when they got back to the town that they set out from, they were going to send a telegram to their families. You know, back then, again, no texts, no emails or anything like that. They were going to send a, a telegram and let folks know that they made it back on time. And then, you know, they could expect them back in their hometowns in a week or so as soon as the train and buses or however they got there, uh, got them back to their hometown. And it turned out that, um, you know, around around February 20th, um, the Institute, where most of the hikers were students, organized a search party with volunteers, of including some of the families in that. And they set out in this uh, rural part of uh, the northern Ural Mountains. And around, uh, you know, uh, around February 26th or on February 26th, the search party came upon an abandoned tent that appeared to have been cut open from the inside. So, Bill, you'll hear this and read this all the time when you whenever you look at this incident or watch the uh, documentary investigations, etc., that, you know, some of the tents appeared to have been cut open from the inside, which is just a strange thing to read about. And then inside the tent, uh, many of the campers' belongings and their shoes were left inside the tent. So no one in the tent looked like they were cut. They cut themselves out from the inside, and they left their shoes and a lot of their belongings in the tent. Wow. Now, Kev, two things uh, come to my mind uh, relative to this. Uh, the first question is, did they say they had any weapons or they were just had hiking gear? Yeah, I didn't come across it at all. I think it was just hiking gear. Okay. I would imagine maybe somebody had a knife. I mean, I'm sure you know, they had knives. Yeah, yeah so, absolutely. But the idea that the tent was to believe to be cut from the inside out as a route of escape 
indicates to me that something was coming in the open end of the tent. It certainly could be or something, you know, uh, uh, maybe, you know, shaking the tent from the outside, you know, something that terrified them enough to get out the other end, like you're saying, without going out the way you came in. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just picture yourself being in this tent. Uh, and, and obviously, uh, to leave the tent with your shoes and your gear and whatnot left behind, they had to be terrified beyond reason uh, to do such a thing. Uh, no doubt about it. I, I can't imagine. Right. I, I just can't imagine how that would happen. You're in uh, you're in this really rural part of the mountains in Russia. It's the middle of winter. There's snow everywhere. You're an experienced hiker. You would, you know, just about never leave your tent without at least slipping your boots on. Yeah. Right. Just no way. I mean, when you're on those rural uh, uh, outings like that, you know, your enemy, right, is uh, is frostbite. Yeah. And, uh, and really like kind of wetness, you know, getting your feet wet and that, you know, as I read about, it's like your absolute enemy, whether you're in the military on these expeditions or, uh, you know, a, a, a pretty serious hiker outdoors person like these folks. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. Wow, that is it's getting creepy already. <laughs> it is. Jeez. Creepy. So so they um, it gets way creepier. Yeah, yep. <laughs> so they found a couple of the bodies, like, you know, at a bottom of a tree that was nearby that tent. It looked like they had maybe made a fire at some point in time. But again, they didn't have shoes on, which is, you know, very strange. And their shoes were pretty darn close by. And then it took a couple of months for them to find everybody else. So, um, and, and they have a, uh, a medical inquest that was performed and i have here i'm i'm going to go through with you uh various excerpts from what the uh what the investigation found so kind of like bulletized facts and we can chat about them during it or or after them so oh, yep. you know one of the one of the controversial things about this is that um six of the group members six of the nine died of hypothermia so, you know, that's not that controversial other than the fact that they died of hypothermia without wearing a lot of the warm clothing that they had with them and that they wore in their tents and had in their tents. And they all died pretty close by to their tents. You know, it took months to find them, but it was because of all the snowfall since they were there. You know, Yeah, so they, um, must, have, they must have left the tent perhaps while they still had their senses— uh, having not succumbed to this hypothermia, maybe they were just trying to stay nearby, knowing that they were already in, in grave trouble, and see what spun off from if this was an attack. Maybe they were hoping this thing or, or things were going to leave and they could get back to their tent and, and try to regroup. Yeah, I think no doubt about it, something created, you know, I don't even know the term for it, but like an extreme panic, it seems, yeah. that that forced them out of their shelter immediately and then didn't allow them or prevented them from getting back to their shelter 
you know, in a timely fashion. So, so here's where it gets really uh, a bit freaky deaky. So, you know, six of them died of hypothermia and three had fatal injuries. Um, so one had a fractured skull and two others had major uh, chest fractures. So, and they talk about it like the, the force of being hit by a vehicle or something like that. Wow. Like if you were, similar to if you were hit by a car. Yeah. So one with a fractured skull, two with extreme chest fractures. And here's where the really crazy stuff goes. Um, one of the other bodies uh, of a team member was missing her tongue and eyes. Oh, so my God. Her tongue and eyes cut out of her body. Holy cow. Well, I'll I'll tell you, you know, you know, I have a lot of accounts that I bring to the table and people can believe them or not. That's your prerogative. When you talk about chest uh, compression or or that type of injury uh, being hit by a car, uh, that reeks to me of a Bigfoot attack. And but then. When you start talking about tongue extraction and eyes missing, now, the term surgical was not used, was it? I didn't come across that, no. Because what also comes to my mind is uh, animal mutilations in reference to uh, UFO activity. Uh, that's, That's been documented heavily for a long time with these... Uh, long before we had lasers and whatnot to use as tools, uh, people were commenting, experts were commenting that it looked like incisions and things were removed with laser-like precision and very little loss of blood. Uh, but we'll never know about this uh, poor woman. It was a woman, right? It was a woman, yeah. So it's, and, you know, just to our listeners for a minute, it probably seems like I'm a bit all over the map on this uh on this account compared to you know hopefully normally it seems a little more organized but this account is all over the map you know uh-huh. here you have uh folks fleeing out of their tents experience you know i just built the foundation that they were very experienced skiers you know hikers uh mountain folks and well educated and then they leave their tent without their clothing you right. know some of their critical clothing then you know Two of them, one of them has a fractured skull. The other two have chest injuries like they were hit by a moving vehicle, you know, is what the, you know, the coroner's inquest described it as. And then another one has their eyes and uh, tongue cut out. And Bill, getting to your reference to, you know, uh, UFO type of thing, yet uh, one of the other bodies was found with very high levels of radiation. Wow. But no one else. Yeah, just you know, a so one. All together. Yeah, it was almost like something uh, came down on him, or he was hit. Uh, you know, you know the story, uh, the UFO account uh, that was they made the movie out of Fire in the Sky, right? Where that guy was out logging with that crew, and uh, he got a little too close for comfort looking at this UFO, and the other guys were trying to call him back to the truck. Uh, next thing you know, he got whacked with this beam. And uh, the guys thought he was dead. He got blown backwards by this beam, and the guys thought he was dead and took off on him. But he was actually an abductee after that. And uh, so 
at any rate, I don't mean to get too far aside, but this is very strange. And another thing that's coming to my mind is, do you know of the, the victims, the three that suffered bodily damage, were they closer to the, the original tent or compound area than those who had suffered from hypothermia? No, they were all scattered around. So yeah. um, it was, you know, like they had this traumatic event, it seems. This is my conclusion. Whatever it was. And we'll talk about some of the many theories. And then they're so frightened that they leave shelter and kind of run in different directions. Yeah. And then it's almost as if, I mean, I would speculate, this isn't what the reports say, that they were disoriented. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So they're outside, probably in the dark, uh, cold, whatever terrified them is still going on and and then they can't locate one another or they're afraid to locate one another right they probably hear some screaming and stuff like that and um and they end up you know finding their bodies basically scattered around right well look whatever attacked them to me it's obvious that some of these others who escaped and just died from exposure were witnessing what was going on. I mean, one by one, several of these people were being dispatched in some type of hideous fashion by something. It had right. to be a physical being that was bashing their rib cage in and then had this woman on the ground tearing her tongue out and poking her eyes out. <laughs> and you can oh, only you can only yeah. imagine the outright terror of thinking I'm next. This thing, this yeah, thing. it's uh, you know, and it, so, and again, you know, we talked about it at the beginning that this takes place in Russia, uh, and in 1959, so certainly Cold War Russia, and uh, Cold War Soviet Union, and they um, they release in their original findings that you know their their invest investigation that became public many years later said that the team died of quote an unknown compelling force, unquote. Wow. Which, you know, that's kind of what you and I are, are, you know, dancing around here. Like, what was that unknown compelling force right. that, uh, that, you know, scared the bejesus out of them and sent them, uh, sent them out into the, uh, into the wild and then led to, uh, you know, some uh, awful and hideous deaths. Yeah, just really, I, I mean, this is a crazy, crazy set of circumstances. And this radiation on this one individual, that is like, uh, I don't even know what to say about that, you know. Could he have come in already with the radiation present on him from, I, I wouldn't even know where you come in contact with uh uh, something yeah, I mean, I was thinking the same thing. You know, there's there a student at this institute. Maybe they're working on some project, but I don't think it would have been a call out. You know, in this in this Russian finding, if they said, "Oh, this guy worked in the nuclear lab at the university." You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it wouldn't have made it to be one of the top ten bullets that they mm -hmm. uh, that they found. Yeah, yeah, no, it's just really, so really remarkable. And then I touched on it in the beginning, so it turns out that I saw an account. Um, I hadn't heard about this recently, though, but uh, on CNN, it says uh, on February 4th of this year, 2019, Russia reopened an investigation 
into this uh, 60-year-old Dyatlov Pass mystery. So, uh, you know, the, the public was unhappy enough with, uh, you know, the theories and that, and even 60 years later, that the government reopened um, the, uh, the investigation. You know, we, we touched on it, but like some of these folks were found, just to further emphasize the, the weirdness of it, other than the injuries, some of these folks were found just over a mile away from the, uh, the camp, and they were in their underwear. Unbelievable. So no other clothes except for their underwear. Unbelievable. Yeah, and no shoes, no socks. And a, a mile, Kev. Think a ab- mile away. Think about you running in your underwear at night in the bitter cold in the snow. The type of terror that you're feeling where you cannot even think of anything other than I've got to escape. Exactly. I mean, even if you're a good runner in snow like that it's got to take you 20 25 minutes to run a mile away yeah you could on just, a mountainside in the snow you could just i'm visualizing these people just panting and grabbing trees and trying to go on and on and on and reason is no longer a factor in their mind it's just sheer terror absolutely wow absolutely so one of the other interesting things about this uh um uh, account and the investigation is the photographs. I touched on that. But you can go online and they found the cameras with the film in them uh, when they found all of the bodies. And and therefore, when they were doing the investigation, they can tell everything that the group was doing. You know, because basically they took pictures every day right up until they believe the day before this all happened. And okay. then, of course, there's no pictures because there was no one alive to take any. But you can follow along and you see them joking around with one another, you know, taking pictures, standing next to one another, smiling. You see them sitting in the back of the kind of like a farm truck that they took to the trailhead when they got close to their uh, to, to the uh, to the beginning of their hike. Um, you know, it's pretty interesting. And of course, Bill, on one of the frames of one of the cameras, you know the picture. What is there a picture of? A Bigfoot in the trees. Yeah, exactly. A the- hairy man. It sure looks like a hairy man taken during the daytime, kind of uh, walking between two trees in about a foot or two of snow. I would estimate maybe 40 feet away from the individual that took the picture. Yeah, and here we go again. Uh, When I say we, I'm not talking about me because that picture was legit. We have a chronological taking of pictures from day to day of this group, happy-go-lucky, taking these pictures so they have them for years to come about their trip and their accomplishments. And here is this frame snapped off in one of the cameras that took the picture of the farm truck, that took the picture of them laughing and cajoling around, that took the pictures of them at various states of the hike. And what is there? That thing is a damn Bigfoot. There is no question about it. It's not a guy in a suit out there in the freaking wilderness somewhere. That thing is a Bigfoot. And when I saw that, I said to myself, my God, that is a Bigfoot. The face, the length of the arms, the fur coat. You could see the, the, the deep inset eyes in the picture. It had its head turned to the right looking at him as he snapped the picture. 
Yeah, it's. I don't think they brought a uh, hairy man suit out on their certification hike. <laughs> yeah, no, it's not going to happen. These guys are grad students. The leader is graduated. They don't jerk around like that. You know, these are serious individuals. Yeah, yeah. So, so it, it, you know, we're going to get a little crazier here too, because I'm gonna I'm gonna explore some of the other theories, which go from the uh, sublime to the ridiculous. So uh, let's let's dive into them a little bit. So, of course, one of the theories is avalanche, um, right? So that basically, you know, they could hear an avalanche coming down the mountainside and they didn't want to get buried alive. So they all like ran for their lives out of the tent, which, you know, it sounds reasonable. Like when I first read about that, I was like, well, that could happen. You know, forget about the picture, the radiation and uh, crazy injuries but you know just go on the journey for a minute but it turns out that even the government said it's not a not a typical area for avalanche in uh ural mountains okay so, so i think that's kind of dismissed at least from my uh my uh look into this then they have this really strange thing that i never heard of before called catabotic wind and uh, I don't know if you ever heard of that, Bill, but, you know, it's like this. And I never heard of it until I read about it. Um, but they say it's a very rare event, um, but it was uh, implicated in the death of some folks in Sweden in 1998, where you have this like kind of a weird topography of the land where this wind can come in so strong that basically you can't hear anything, you can't think straight, you know, it just rips everything apart in its path. I guess kind of like a tornado, you know, without the uh, without the rotation, right? Uh, right. But it comes in, and but super rare, you know, certainly um, in in uh, extreme cold of winter and things like that. It's kind of a, I, I you know, in my experience with weather. It's it's not likely that you have this really strange event like that, but that is uh, a, a legitimate theory that this happened. This catabolic wind. It doesn't explain how you know somebody got their head bashed in and how two people have injuries like they were hit by an automobile, chest injuries, and certainly how someone had their eyes and tongue cut out. Yeah, and again, back to the uh, intelligentsia that we're dealing with here. You're going to leave the tent in a severe windstorm and the tent was still left standing. Exactly. Exactly. There was no reason to exit the tent uh, at that time, especially undressed. Yeah. No, I, I mean, unless there's like sound associated to it. Again, something that you never knew before. And that that gets us actually the sound gets us to this next theory. Um, and this theory was uh, uh, popularized um, by a book. Uh, in 2013 called Dead Mountain, where uh, this gentleman, Donnie Eicher, wrote this book. Um, and this this wind, uh, uh, this sound is created by uh, some type of uh, vortex, and uh, it's called infrasound. And uh, it generates this uh, a wild level of sound that causes physical discomfort and mental distress. So basically, this sound can make you go crazy uh, because you've never heard anything like that. Okay. And so we, the, the, this theory goes that they heard this sound, they panicked, they tore themselves out of the tent, and then they ran for it because, you know, of course, they're not running away from the sound. 
And then when they could get their composure, they couldn't orientate themselves because basically they ran in all different directions. Right. Which is legitimate. Uh, we know now, uh, even militarily, they're using sound weapons. Absolutely. Uh, however, it still doesn't explain the intense bodily damage, particularly the vehicular type impacts. I mean, you're talking some type of blunt force trauma, which brings me back to the story of the bone pile with the uh, orthopedic surgeon when he found that body with the rib cage compressed and the frontal attack on the skull. He said it looked like somebody drove a. a uh, 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 a piece of billet aluminum into the person's face to to damage it in that fashion. Exactly. So, and that that leads us actually to this other theory. So we're in Russia. We know, you know, back then, uh, you know, it was a little crazier than normal there. And there's speculation that their campsite, when they were doing this hike, fell within the path of a Soviet parachute mine exercise so apparently uh the soviets back then had these mines that they would drop from the air and they would come down with a parachute and blow up uh just above the ground so i i know i've seen that with uh illustrations and animations of modern cruise missiles too some of them kind of fly over an airfield and drop these these bombs that are either a parachute or slope falling, and then they detonate just above the ground. So this is one of those theories that, you know, maybe the government didn't know they were there and they were doing this uh, kind of testing. But again, it doesn't consistently explain the behavior. You know, you could, you, you could imagine that they hear these bombs going off. They're certainly terrified. But again, I think I would put my boots on. You know, to yeah. to run out. I think I would put my coat on. Yeah, and right? it it does nothing to explain the singular snapshot of that Bigfoot standing oh, in yeah. the trees. No, no explanation there. And then the mines didn't cut someone's tongue out and cut their eyes out. Oh, right. Uh, and my, then no one had any other um, like uh, shrapnel you know, cuts, cuts or abrasions on them. You know, you'd think if there were mines going off near enough to them to cause uh, skull fracture and, uh, you know, these chest injuries that somebody would get hit with a piece of shrapnel. Oh, there's no doubt about it. And, I mean, even back then, if a mine blows up, there were going to be flesh wounds galore on somebody. Absolutely. Especially Absolutely. if the mine has killed you. You were close enough where you were going to get hit with multiple pieces of metal fragmentation. Yep. And then... After so the last one I'm going to talk about, and this this uh, report did not come up during the time of the initial investigation. So the folks that reported this were viable witnesses and things like that, but for whatever reason they didn't come forward. Um, not not hard to believe, you know. I mean, for whatever reason, when you when I talk about it, you'll see maybe a reason but they reported two different groups and one group of hikers that was about 31 miles south of this particular incident reported that they saw strange orange spheres in the sky to the north which would have been in the direction of this camp uh, and they saw them on the exact night of this incident wow yeah yeah well now look people i know there are people out there who uh, uh, died in the wool uh, believers that there is no uh, UFO connection 
uh, to Bigfoot. Uh, I beg to differ. I've said it a dozen times, if not a hundred times. I think there's two things going on here, a living created entity and then something else being mimicked. Uh, There are loads of accounts of Bigfoot sightings relative to UFO sightings and or in conjunction with UFO sightings. Here we once again have spheres being seen in the sky by uh, uh, separate people, separate witnesses who just commented uh, that they had seen these things somewhere in the direction of where these hikers potentially were. Is that is that correct, Kim? That's it, and it gets better. So during this same period, so not necessarily the day, but from February to March 1959, uh, some of the witnesses that saw this included uh, the meteorology service for uh, the Soviet Union and the military. But they were not noted. None of these people came forward or made note of this in uh, during the investigation in 1959. Wow. Yeah, you know. So, Bill, in this, when we talk about this, you know, when you say that, you know, talk about the connection to UFOs, you're saying that perhaps these uh, alien creatures are mimicking the behavior of a Bigfoot, right? Because it's they're they're kind of uh, uh, hiding. Or dressing up as, uh, not literally dressing up, but you know what I mean. They're morphing into something that looks more acceptable than maybe a giant green person with uh, weird eyes and antenna. Yeah, no, it's <laughs> it's different than that uh, with okay. me, Kev. You know, if you're asking me, uh, I don't believe uh, the aliens being seen are in fact aliens. I think these creatures are demonic entities, That these things are from the pit of hell, and their appearance is what many know as the greys, the the little green guys with the big almond-shaped eyes. And I think in conjunction with him, we have, with them, we have other weirdness going on to the extreme, uh, being uh, creatures such as... uh, uh, Bigfoot being mimicked by them, but being controlled by them, almost like an automaton. Okay. And okay. other things like uh, Dogman. Uh, I think these are demonic entities. They're created to put fear in people, uh, uh, to uh, to do evil, to frighten. And I think that may be what was happening here at Dyatlov. Now, they got a picture of this Bigfoot. If it was, in fact, a flesh-and-blood Bigfoot, we don't know. But the thing had, if it was this creature, had a physical ability to uh, wreak havoc and bodily injury on these people. So if the two incidents are separate, I don't know. If they're combined, I don't know that either. It's total speculation. Right. And, you know, no matter what, there's something interesting there for the Russian government to open up a new investigation now, 60 years later after the incident. So, you know, and I, I opened up saying it's one of the biggest unsolved mysteries in the world. And it truly is. I mean, uh, you know, we're here talking about uh, aliens and Bigfoot and uh, the demonic realm. But it's there's there's no one knows what happened to these people, but they were nine very intelligent very prepared individuals that all died under very strange circumstances of very strange causes on the same night in the mountains of russia right now listen 
I've said this before. You're going to hear it a thousand times, people, out of my lips. I have personally had contact with uh, angels. And when I tell you that you are never prepared for that type of contact, I am not kidding you. It sends fear down your spine, even when their intent is good. It is so mind-blowing for a flesh-and-blood human being to suddenly be confronted with these types of things that it literally sends a shiver from head to toe uh, down through your body and puts fear in you. And this is exactly why in all of the old biblical narratives when angels contacted people, they always said, do not be afraid. Because they knew the immediate impact was that you were going to be scared to death by their presence. Yeah, no and, doubt about it. And their intent was good. Right. If, right. You, if, you're, if you're in the presence of an evil entity <laughs> uh, and their intent is, in fact, to do harm, I can only imagine the level of fear and terror that is present uh, when that is going on. Yeah, I, I mean, I haven't had those experiences. I'm not wishing for them unless they save my life or something like that. But uh, certainly, uh, you know, I'm a believer of the uh, the uh, uh, spirits and demons in the demonic realm. And that nothing scares me more than that or nothing scares me even close to uh, that. Well, I don't have any of those encounters either. So, yeah. you know, that's the account for uh, this week, Bill. I'm sure we're going to talk about it some more, especially if anything new comes out of the investigation. But it is, you know, as we would say, a freaky deaky yeah. encounter. And My these God. poor people, again, you know, didn't have a lot of humor in this because, you know, nine folks lost their lives in a brutal fashion. Yeah. Um, but but a really interesting account. And again, to our listeners out there, you'll hear us talk about it more. And I encourage uh, them if they've seen anything different or, you know, heard anything different, learned about anything different. Like we always say, if you see something, say something. Or if you've read something, uh, say something, you know, write a write a note into our website, uh, BigfootTerrorInTheWoods.com and let us know because we'll be talking about this some more. Yeah, no doubt about it. All right, Kev, that was fantastic. And I'm telling you, you took the words out of my mouth. No humor found in that at all. No, no. I mean, that was one intense uh, exegesis of some of the information you came across. And well done with that, bro. Now, listen, I got something really interesting here, uh, so let me jump right in. Uh, this following encounter was brought to my attention by Dirk and Danielle Matheson, a couple who uh, reside in Fresno, California. And this is what the two of them experienced on October 22nd in 2001. It was during October 01 that Dirk and I had decided to roll both of our chairs under our desks for five days and head south into the Kiva wilderness for a little mental health break. The two of us, being avid runners and cyclists, planned to do a little mountain biking and or hiking. Having arrived at our destination on our first day in, we made our way up to Walker's Pass and returned in the afternoon where we spent the rest of the evening and night in our camper. On the morning of our second day, we had decided to head a little north up to Onyx 
and having done so, we hiked up into the Domeland Wilderness. We were about four hours into our trek when we decided to cop a squat leaning against a large pine in a really beautiful spot in the woods. We were sitting side by side when I suddenly realized that Dirk was snoring, having fallen asleep with his head on my shoulder. And so, as not to wake him up, I actually sat very still, which led me to falling asleep as well. This was by no means a strange happening, for the two of us were physically and mentally exhausted from our busy work schedule, which is why, after all, we had come here. I know now that we had nodded out for about an hour when something whacked me on the head, which startled me. I jumped up, and believe it or not, Dirk was still sound asleep. Wondering what had hit me in the head, I looked down and saw a pine cone laying on the ground. At the time, I just assumed it fell from the tree, having not looked up at the tree itself. Feeling sorry for Dirk and not wanting to awaken him, I actually sat back down next to him and closed my eyes. I set the alarm on my phone for 40 minutes before having done so. I know now that I had fallen asleep again when I was yet again awoken from my snooze by something smacking me in my left cheek. This time I said, ouch, which awoke Dirk from his siesta. Honey, you finished telling Bill what happened. So this is Dirk now. So anyway, Danielle starts telling me of being hit by two pine cones, one on the top of her head and the other against her cheek. I'm just turning pages here. And of course, I looked at the two pine cones and then up into the tree that we were leaning against. A tree which, by the way, I might add, had no pine cones on it whatsoever. Now, both of us were looking up into the tree I was, as I was pointing out to Danielle that the tree, in fact, had no cones on it to drop. It was at that time that we both heard a slight crunch coming from our right-hand side, which was where a gigantic dead pine was laying on its side in the woods near to us. We both looked at the same time and saw nothing and I began to grab all of my stuff to begin hiking back out. It was then that Danielle tapped me on the shoulder and mouthed the words, Look over there. She was pointing at the top edge of the pine laying in the woods. As I began to focus on what she was already seeing, I noticed what appeared to be the crown of a head covered in fairly bright colored red fur, moving back and forth behind the tree's trunk. Suddenly, and without warning, a head began to rise above the trunk, and a pair of black eyes became visible that were staring right at us. Danielle, grabbing my arm intensely, said to me, Oh my God, what is that? No sooner has she said that than the head ducked back down. I said to her, Let's grab our stuff and get out of here. Continuing to watch over our shoulders as we gathered our packs together, this creature, which we now could see was a Sasquatch, stood to its feet behind the log, turned, and began to walk away. 
at first very slowly and then at a very rapid pace, disappearing into the woods. The total elapsed time from its standing to being gone from view was maybe 20 seconds. I remember letting out a huge sigh, which said to me that I had been holding my breath. The trunk was about three feet thick, <coughs> Excuse me, and this creature was at least four or more feet taller than it was. The moment I saw its face, it looked like a pale-colored pancake. It was very flat and round, with no hair on it whatsoever. The entire rest of the body was covered in fairly long red or rust-colored hair. I say hair because I could see gray-colored flesh through the hair virtually everywhere on its body. It was extremely burly-looking, having somewhat the body of a grizzly bear standing on its hind legs. But make no mistake about it, this was no bear. It walked away perfectly and quickly on two legs without a hitch. The two of us stood there for about ten minutes in an utter daze after it was gone from view. <coughs> neither, of us, neither of us believing at the time what we had just seen. It was like an out-of-body experience for the two of us. After it was long gone, we walked around the other side of the felled tree to look at where it had been standing. When we got around there, a collection of pine cones was sitting on the ground, and there were actually two different types. They were exactly like the ones that hit Danielle, but they weren't from any of the trees that were near us. We assumed that the Sasquatch had brought them there only to leave them behind after we had seen it. It was completely bizarre and utterly surreal. Why this creature had decided to toss some pine cones at us is anyone's guess. We will never know for sure. Perhaps it wanted us to see it, but who really knows? What we do know is that it had obviously brought these pine cones with it from somewhere else, and perhaps seeing us both sleeping had decided to have a little fun with us, but we will never know. Wow. I mean, all I can say is good thing it was throwing uh, pine cones and not uh, rocks like uh, Nolan Ryan would throw them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe it was a juvenile uh, creature and it was kind of playing with them or something like that. You know? Yeah, a very unusual description, too, with the pale pancake-shaped face. Yeah, that's I haven't heard that before. Certainly the coloring we've heard a lot and the black eyes seems like... Either it's red glowing eyes or black eyes. Yeah, and in between. I had somebody contact me the other day. As a matter of fact, I got to get back to this fella. Uh, he had a couple of encounters, and during his, the eyes were like uh, amber or yellow. Oh, okay. I haven't heard that one. Yeah, I. Uh, who knows? I, I mean, I really don't know. You know, you can't. I don't uh, poke fun at people or say you're a liar or you're not, because people can do the same with me. Oh yeah, we don't. So. Know. <laughs> People who live in glass houses can't throw stones, you know. No, we do. We do our best to, uh, you know, uh, bring out or separate the wheat from the chafe, because it's we do have, you know, some bill right. We can let our listeners know, like they they have a really good account, but then they talk about something, 
you know, absolutely ridiculous in the same breath, you know. That, yeah, yeah. That they, met, they met President Washington last night at the dinner table. Yeah. Yeah, like, okay, never mind. It was him, I swear to you. <laughs> he put his wooden teeth on the table. Exactly. <laughs> but also interesting where, um, you know, uh, the account talked about the fact that it was hair and not fur, you know, and they, they specified that. And kind of uh, a big body like a grizzly, but no mistaking it for for a grizzly, which, you know, gets to last week, our discussion of my trip to Alaska, where I had so many of these close encounters, you know, uh, positive close encounters with brown bears or grizzly bears. And I was telling you, there is no way ever, ever, ever that you would mistake uh, the hairy man for a grizzly bear, and she's kind of making the same point there in the account. Yeah, I mean, even the design of the body, just the characteristics, the head, yeah. uh, there's nothing the same about uh, a Sasquatch and a grizzly bear. Maybe the coloration at times with this reddish auburn we hear about frequently. But I've heard accounts of blonde, and we know there are blonde uh, bears, or what they call blonde. Yeah. Uh, it's more of a yellowish kind of— I saw some of them, for okay. sure. So, okay, so like yeah. a wheat color? I saw everything from black. Black is coal and shiny. Um, and, and, but yet talking about a brown bear or a grizzly bear, what we would call it further south than Alaska— to uh, kind of a very, very light tan. I would call it a blonde. Yeah. Okay, so there you have it, folks. First-hand yeah. information from my brother. He's <laughs> in territory where he's basically fishing with grizzlies, and he's seeing everything from uh, black to blonde as fur exactly. coloration. Now, now, just to be clear, I didn't want to be fishing with the grizzlies because <laughs> then I'm competing for their food source, you know. <laughs> I did a lot of salmon fishing on this trip, but never when I was next to grizzlies. <laughs> I didn't well, want them to think I was coming into their pantry. <laughs> yeah, I could see somebody climbing into the river next to them and trying to swat the salmon, <laughs> asking for directions. <laughs> Everything's fine until you start yeah. wandering into their pantry and taking their Yeah, yeah, that's when the party. That's when the party really starts. I'm pretty easy going with my neighbors, but don't be coming into my kitchen and taking stuff out of the fridge. Don't be chomping on my salmon, especially $25 a pound. Exactly. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, Kev, so what do we have from our listeners today? Oh, we got some good stuff this week, Bill. Um, uh, the first one comes from Matthew, I think in Arizona. Um, and he says something which we've seen in our reviews, too, which I like. He says, uh, hey, guys, I love your show. You remind me of Click and Clack from the NPR show Car Talk. Uh, it's great fun. Uh, and then he says, do you have any reports in your books from Arizona? Wow. Yeah. No, uh, not to my knowledge. Now, uh, hear me out, folks. I have hundreds and hundreds uh, of accounts. Uh, I forget some of them that I penned, and many of them come to my mind as we're talking. Uh, but I do not recall uh, anything from Arizona. Uh, and I may be wrong. Something in the back of my mind is telling me there was there was one in there from Arizona. 
but as far as answering you, I'd have to say no. But listen, the whole purpose of what we're doing here is trying to get all of you to chime in with us. And we are earnestly awaiting contact from you in regards to what you may have seen. So please reach out from us. If you've had something legitimately that you've seen in Arizona uh, or the surrounding states, uh, I'm asking you to reach out to us and contact us, and we'll have conversation. I call back a lot of people. I spend a lot of time on the phone with people. Uh, and uh, some of them turn out to fizzle out and be duds, and uh, other people, uh, I believe, have been legitimately telling me of encounters they have had. So do, do reach out to us. Yep, good stuff. And, and uh, you know, to Matthew on uh, the reference to Click and Clack and Car Talk, you know, a great show that, that I love. Um, and uh, I've often, after I started seeing these, uh, these comments and reviews related to Click and Clack, I uh, haven't told you this, Bill, but I was thinking of starting to refer to the sections of our show like they used to. They would have the first half, the second half, and then the third half. <laughs> yeah i love it you know and i like people that are willing to poke fun at themselves which i do all the time i'm a sarcastic yeah. i'm a sarcastic ogre at heart but <laughs> i love the interaction with other people i can kind of buy into where i'm coming from you know and kind of chime in with me you know Exactly. So, exactly. yeah. All right. So our our next uh, uh, note comes now, in now from wait, Rodney. Kev, Kev, is this officially the third half? This is the third half of the show. All right. All right. <laughs> so this note comes in from Rodney, who uh, you announced as one of the contest winners. Uh, and he says, great books and shows, frequent water cooler conversations, love the Western Pennsylvania stories. Perhaps take a look at giant skeleton mounds of Pennsylvania as one of your cryptid stories. Should be fun. Looking forward to being entered in the contest. Rod. Yeah, well, Rodney, not only were you entered, you won, brother. Exactly. <laughs> and listen, you know, I think in our last, po our last podcast I was mentioning to you, Kev, uh, cryptids in the news and other oddities, uh, digging into some of the giants. And uh, yeah. uh, we may be down the road uh, talking about something very interesting coming from the area of a place called Lovelock Cave in Nevada. So uh, do stay tuned for that. But, Rodney, thanks a lot for your comments. And uh, I'm glad you're conversing about what we're talking about around the water cooler. Yeah, great stuff. All right. So we're going to go... Uh uh, to a part of the world where I've been several times from Ilka in Romania. Wow. So uh, over in Eastern Europe, uh, home of Count Dracula. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, she says, uh, I, I assume it's a she, Ilka. I don't know. I apologize if you're not a she. I love your podcast. Would you kindly revisit the origins of the abominable snowman? Huh. I have I have kind of forgotten about it, and I am sure many would be interested in hearing the two of you speak about it. This is some great listening, and much success to you both. Well, thank you very much, Elka. Yeah, that's fantastic. And, you know, uh, she's spot on, Kev. I mean, the abominable snowman uh, is probably one of the beginnings of the Bigfoot 
phenomena that most people have heard something about. But she's correct. Uh, I think we'll do that, uh, dig into uh, the how and the why of the term uh, abominable snowman. And uh, I think that would make some uh, for some interesting listening. And it'll be educational for us as well, you know. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, thanks. Thanks for writing in, Ilka. Uh, stay away from those blue lights when you're up in the mountains. In yeah. Count Vlad's castle. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Watch out. Watch out. <laughs> All if right. If you, see any bat, if you see any bats hovering around your window at night, pull the covers <laughs> over your head. <laughs> All right. So our next uh, email comes from Brenda. And uh, Brenda didn't specify where she is. Um, but she said, this is the all-time best podcast. Well, that's certainly very kind. <laughs> Someone somewhere has to bring these stories into an ongoing miniseries. I guess she means like a television miniseries. Uh, talk about terrifying. It would be awesome. I've got my popcorn waiting. God bless both of you. <laughs> oh, that's incredible. You know, and I'll tell you. Uh, I've often thought about that, you know, with all of the things that uh, I watch and listen to. Uh, some of these encounters, uh, and we're going to be getting into them over the months of the years, they really rock your world. I mean, and, and in the same light as us just speaking about this Dyatlov uh, pass incident, I cannot believe... Uh, the terror when you are alone, uh, the feeling of being defenseless, weapons having no effect in the instances where people have shot at a creature. Uh, talk about terrifying. I mean, she is she's totally correct that uh, if you were to see this in some type of whatever film format, it would freak you out. There's no doubt about it. Uh, there's no doubt about it so keep your popcorn Ilka and share some with me don't be selfish (laughs) (laughs) all right Bill I think the last uh, last letter we're going to cover this week comes from Verna in Germany ah Verna (laughs) Achtung my friend do you remember uh, Verna that used to work on dad's cars Oh, yeah, that guy yeah. at uh, Weeby Motors. Exactly, exactly. Wow. Hey, you yeah. know something? Uh, I don't know if you know it, Kev. Uh, back then, we used to joke when we rode on the Long Island Expressway how many Volkswagen Beetles there were. Yeah. And uh, uh, Pat, our sister, and I used to count them, and it was one out of every four cars was a Volkswagen Beetle. So there were guys who specialized in working on just VWs. And Verna, who was the size of a freaking Sasquatch. He was as big as a Sasquatch. That that was one big mother, man. (laughs) And that guy could pick up a V-dub pancake motor by the exhaust manifolds and lift it onto the workbench. (laughs) That is like... So, Bill, I don't know if I ever told you this story, but when I was in college, I had that little uh, old uh, rundown Triumph Spitfire. Yeah, yep. And uh, I would drive that to school each day. 
and uh, it was nothing fancy folks like it was uh, basically you know a 80 dollar paint job and but it was fun to drive uh-huh. and um but i used to bring it to verna to work on it and uh-huh. of course it was a triumph automobile so if any of you had triumphs out there you did get to know your mechanic pretty well <laughs> <laughs> and we'll get back to the letter i promise but verna one day i was i was more frustrated than normal with my triumph and um, I was go. I had been going down that said uh, Long Island Expressway. I hit a bump at night, and all of the lights went out on the vehicle. Great, um, including the dash lights, and never came back on. So I brought it into Verna, and Verna said to me, "Well, you know, Kevin, this is Lucas Electronics." And he said, "Do you know who Lucas was?" And I said, "No." And he said, "The God of Darkness." <laughs> 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 the god of darkness and here you are followed up by saying i know you're frustrated but i never told you to buy an english automobile <laughs> <laughs> all right so back to our last email from uh, Verna in germany it's yeah a different one he says i'm sure that many people at this point have at least heard of bigfoot but in your last podcast, this is actually a few podcasts ago, so you got to catch up there, Verna. He said, you dis- you touched on the existence of Dogman. What on earth is that? Fantastic podcast. So, Wow. Um, well, so here we go, Verna. Uh, I, again, I don't believe, as I do with Bigfoot, that the Dogman is a natural creation. Uh, <clears throat> I think that this... Uh, Dogman creatures from the pit of hell, uh, frightening people. Uh, it has um, uh, uh, flesh and blood. Uh, now, you may say to yourself or to me, how can we say something is demonic or angelic and yet it has flesh and blood? Well, I spill back to my uh, being a Christian and Specifically, the scripture says that we're to be careful when we entertain strangers because we do not know when we are actually entertaining an angel. Uh, uh, Angels have sat and eaten with people. Angels have gotten in people's cars as hitchhikers and then exited while the car was still moving. So how does a dogman have flesh and blood? I have no idea. But I do not think these things are a creature like Bigfoot. Uh, I believe the Bigfoot may be a spinoff from the Gigantopithecus, as we talked about, Kev. Yep. Uh, but I think, again, there are two things going on here. One real and one uh, from the demonic realm. I also believe this di- uh, Dogman creature is from that same demonic realm. And yep. we'll be talking about that down the road. Uh, oh, yeah. So- we did an episode on Dogman, unless I dreamt it. Um, Verna, you should be able to find it where you find our podcast. Yeah, yeah. And we'll we'll be kicking all these things around as uh, as the time goes on. So don't worry about it. Cool. Cool. Well, Bill, um that's our last uh mail that we'll cover this week. Thanks to everybody writing in. We got a ton of mail this week. Um and uh thanks again to just for your time and uh for the great reviews on your uh, favorite favorite source of podcasts. We've had some great reviews coming in lately and we really appreciate it. I want to thank all of you. And again, if you see something, say something. Fantastic. And until we meet again, my friends, 
Remember, always carry more gun than you think you're going to need. Sleep tight.